Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we'll start with British artist Michael Dean. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas is now showing Dean's first solo American museum exhibition. Dean's work takes ideas rooted in language and text and explores them in sculpture, often in humble materials such as concrete or corrugated sheet metal. The show, which was curated by Jed Morse, is on view through February 5th, 2017. Dean's work was also recently on view at New York's City Hall Park as part of the Public Art Fund exhibition, The Language of Things. He's shortlisted for the 2016 Turner Prize, too. That'll be awarded on December 5th. On the second segment, curator Kaylin Weber discusses Julian Onderdonk and the Texan Landscape, which is on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston through January 2nd of next year. Onderdonk was an early 20th century impressionist whose paintings of Texas featured the state's spare desert beauty hill country wildflowers, and helped rouse the state to value its landscape. The MFA Houston has just published Julian Onderdonk, a catalog resume. Amazon offers it for 95 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. But first, Michael Dean, after the break. We've got a live show to announce. Please join Eduardo Bezwaldo and me at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden on November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Bezwaldo has been a regular on the international ennial circuit in recent years, exhibiting at biennials in Montevideo, Lyon, Venice, and more. The Hirshhorn recently acquired Bezwaldo's 2012 sculpture, The End of Ending, an enormous, nearly room-filling installation that combines sculpture with staging and a certain psychological presence. It's on view in the museum now. Eduardo Bezwaldo live at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, Friday, November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Hope to see you there. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew, and examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts, or search for it in your favorite podcast player. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, This unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hirshhorn, visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And we're back. Michael Dean, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, Tyler. Nice to meet you. The, the text at the introduction for your show at the Nasher says that the work in the show stems from learning that, quote, evolutionarily, 
cacti can be described as having lost true leaves. Funny, now that I've read that, I realize it must be true. I'd never really thought of it before. I guess, first, where did you read that? And, and secondly, how do you get from reading that to thinking about sculpture? Well, I found, I found that on Wikipedia, actually, just, cast, just casting, casting the net, trying to expand on my vocabulary in relation to growing and models of things manifesting themselves in space in a way, like weeds and plants and stuff like this. And uh, I was thinking about the cactus in relation to a body that, sh- that sh- has these modes of defense things to, to prevent people from sinking their teeth into its flesh. So the cactus was on my list in terms of growth and forms and what I could find. And when I just read across that line, it was one of those one of those moments. Um, lost true leaves, lost true leaves. You know, t- to say lost true leaves, it sounds like a Buddy Holly song you never got round to writing. You know, or it it just it opened something and in a way and and I hope it's it's something that I try to get with like an experience of the work in the space somehow. You come across these these things that somehow include you in a circle around them, a thought, become a, a diagram of a, of a of an emotion or a thought that you hadn't quite been able to put a title to. And in terms of how I would think about arri- arriving, taking that text and arrive, getting it into a space, it's really what all of my, you know, it's this thing that I can't get over really. I, I write, I, I, I write all the time, always have done. And this, the I guess, the, for want of a better word, the politics of how of, of interface, like how I get writing, which essentially is really meaningful to me, but of no consequence to you in your life. How do I get that into your hands? I mean, I still want to share the fact that I exist, but only if it means that I can facilitate poetry somehow in the minds of others. You know that my big, you know, my my a problem that I have, my my problem that I have with language and literature and all of these things. For for want of it, all my life, I kind of built an incredible system of grudges against it. I'm thinking about how I can get writing into an in, into an experience in which people are not trying to hermeneutically trans, uh, translate or interpret, you know, what I'm giving them. I want to somehow, as the, as the author, I want to somehow be there just enough for something to happen for me that I can hold on to my emotional life, but then dis- disappear and uh, facilitate this autonomy in others. Like, and I felt... You know, I, I tried write. I tried experimenting with conventional forms of sharing my handwriting and different print me, uh, uh, different typefaces that I could use. You know, conventionally printing on paper and stuff like this, and and in book form. But I, my, I always felt that people would look, would look at it within the within the context of literature, the context that I've tried. I've, well, I was, I feel isolated from, and I've isolated myself from it further as like as a political consequence of. A history of poverty or something. So, so, so in that quote, there are two things that kind of jump out, or two kind of physical things that jump out, cacti and leaves. Is it important to you to represent either of those things in sculptural form, or are those ideas more kind of a jumping off point for abstraction? A bit of both. I mean, it's like, I, I, I think people will see, will, will have a sense of the legacy of a body of a cactus in, a, in, a, in an archetypal, cartoony, acme kind of way, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, but with all of the work, this is the, the difficulty is in, my, in, in some respects, of course, I'm being incredibly explicit and, and very particular. And I'm, all, all of the work is, is down, down to the detail. But 
I'm not asking people to be able to know exactly what I'm what I'm talking, you know, I'm, what, what, what is it I'm trying to say? It's kind of like, it's this thing that I always fall over when I'm talking about my work, which I guess is, is a good thing, because I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. A sense of like a, this like idea of being like a hyper-author or something where I'm trying to author a situation in which the viewer knows that they are the author. It's like, how, how do you get people into an exhibition where it actually matters that they are there? They don't have to know anything about the history of art, even they don't have to know anything about where I come from or any of that shit. They just have to think, where am I coming from? And now I'm standing in here. What can I see? What, you know, what does it mean to my body? What, 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 what are my emotions? How are my emotions reflected in the color, the materiality, the ghostly presence involved in the hands that have somehow held and grabbed this cement in shape for a moment long enough for it then to set this kind of, I want to try to implicate people in the experience and center them as the protagonist, I don't know. So you're happy to give people an idea of what your jumping off point was, but you don't need them to find that thing within the work. No, I, I want, I want, I try to keep away from, I mean, this is really difficult situ- to, to engineer really, trying to facilitate people's sense of freedom in the space. I've found that, I don't know if it's my hermeneutical experience in relation to literature and art and like uh, education, something like this. But there's always, you know, looking to the genius of the author or, or the artist or that, you know, what are they, what, what amazing insights are they going to give? I, I'm, I'm not really interested in anybody giving me any insights. I'm, I, you know, my time on the earth is really limited. I'm very selfish about what works and what doesn't work. I don't have much time. Uh, so I'm hoping, you know, I hope to, to grab people that people feel implicated in it and that they'll have an, a, a moment of intensity or attraction and, and in that way the work will be like a middle and will be symmetrically intimate but set, fundamentally separate and hopefully both autonomous like I want people to feel I don't I don't want people to feel frustrated by a sense of like what you know I hope you don't mind me I swear it's my cultural privilege of being a jolly but you know what the fuck am I doing in this like, like what like I don't want them to just feel totally frustrated in a sense that they can't enter. I'm hoping that the work hits them before they've even had a chance to think about it, maybe. Let's talk about materials for a moment. You, you, you use a range of sculptural materials, but in recent years, I, I think probably your use of concrete has been the most constant material you've used, if that's, if that's the right phrasing. Why is concrete interesting? It was born out of, like, one, you know, this uh, an, an urgency in turning the writing into as mo- as archetypal a physical thing as I could, and and also to do it in such a way to demonstrate that you can do it for under ten pounds. You know that you can you can get this shit down the beat the DIY store, and and you can manifest it without anybody's help or assistance. A bit like forming a punk band. You know, you take your sand, cement, a bit of water, you throw it together, and then you you're left with this physical hardcore thing that you could smash and destroy another form with it's this huge thing I say, yeah I mean that's 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 the answer really I kind of I, I like to think of it some people might think it's potential I don't give a fuck I mean like an idea of democratic ceramics you know I collected I collected loads of books on ceramics and stuff in my time growing up but Jesus fucking Christ I couldn't find any goddamn body who had enough money to have a kiln or to know how to use this stuff that, that was for the people who lived across the golf course you know so I'm thinking about how can I manifest that with the same love, the same surfaces, but with just concrete. And um, we all know what it what it feels like. We all walk on it, touch it, we live with it one way or another. I think it's important when people realise that it's concrete. There's, I, I, I'm hoping that's also like a sense that they might they own that experience more. So I don't know. 
an idea, an idea that they could imagine that I, I could actually go away and make this right now if I had a bin bag and some cement. One of the neat things that happens in your work is there is sometimes a, or quite often really, a collision between that material, concrete, and the forms of your work. So take, for example, the work you made a few years ago that we called tongues, human, I guess, human tongues. Are you interested in in that dichotomy in, in that you're using a material like concrete with all of its contexts and origins and and converting it into a form that recalls something so unlike it? I mean, I'm absolutely in the middle of, of that, trying to, but in this, I'm, yes, I'm certainly caught in the spell of how I can turn this dirty shit into something that's glossy and muscular and I kind of fell under the spell. I mean, I I, I didn't train as a, as a sculptor. I'm not even sure that I am a sculptor. And the things that I make, I guess people keep calling them sculptures, but I'm, it's, 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 it's a really a way of just trying to give a face to a piece of writing, to an, econ- an economy of triangles, which you then try to make vertical with a huge bit of cement as much, you know, as about the size of a human body. And then you, I found that o- over time, as you know, you, you First of all, it's just for the, the, to produce a face, and you're making a large press mold out of cement and throwing it down into uh, MDF form, which is covered with cling film or bin bags. Uh, you demold this thing, but you, as you you find, you know, as you're throwing in this cement and you're you're, you're massaging the, the plastic or what have you into it in order that it doesn't uh, the water doesn't leave it too quickly. Yeah, you start you start realizing that like you're touching like meat in a pack you're thinking about what what is this flesh i mean of course i'm a, I'm a fucking writer i can't help it i start then words just start bubbling and uh, as soon as i started turning my words into writing i started to write about me writing um I was quite a, with the fear that i'm disappearing at my own arse but this is also then this sense of the politics of trying to include more people and it not just being some solipsistic exercise in the dark yeah i mean it's nuts what you can do with, with concrete, but it is, sense, nuts. it is nuts what you can do with concrete. <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's it's, it's uh, this sense of what you what you can do with the skein of uh, this epidermis of, of 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 plastic over over this of this fleshy shit shitty mess, you know. So you it it con- it holds your gestures. It, it you can hide them with smears and and pulls, and, and there's a few secrets which of course I won't share with you. In order, in, but in, in order to, to achieve these effects, but I'm, I'm sure with time anyone else would find them out too. Yeah, there's, I mean, a sense of being able to look at something and not, you know, that your first instinct, and although in this situation I have to say you're not allowed to touch my sculpture, so don't fucking get your dirty hands over them this time. But uh, this sense of that people's first response is like to want to touch because, you know, they can see perhaps the absence of a hand or how a hand, the fingers have draped all the way down and just managed to somehow catch this invisible skin, which glossily holds the cement in this moment before it might look as though it's just going to fall and drop to the floor. Yeah, sorry, I'm looking look at me just getting excited about my own work. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> in this show at the Nasher, a number of your sculptures have, have color, kind of a fleshy pink kind of a patina-ish green. Why did you decide to add color? Colors were a relatively new thing, partly down to the internet being given me access to specific, you know, concrete color. I'd experimented before with, you know, just using raw paint as pigment and with devastating results, the illusion of something solid, which when you touch, crumbles to nothing. 
but with cement pigment it's given me like a range of options suddenly i can use any color but with this show i started one of the starting points was somehow I've, i mean you know i've been working so much in, in london and i had an opportunity to really give it uh, this show i did at south london gallery called sick glyphs and this was a very personal moment about uh, almost somehow using the, the urban surfaces of London and casting almost the, casting the work against those surfaces. Essentially, I was thinking about, you know, I'm just then to come. What does it mean then? I didn't want it as some part of kind of cultural tourism to bring like a slice of East London to Dallas and like, hey, look at this. I, I needed, I needed, I, I needed more than that. And this idea, you know, very, it, it's at the end of a, a huge train of really serious incredible shows and really uh, incredibly intense moments in my life with my family right now and which i won't go into now but this idea of you know uh, let me quote wittgenstein which i've never done before <laughs> talk about like uh, the limits of language or the limits of my world or something and i was thinking about my family being the limits of the limits of my family the limits of my world and i'd been using their dimensions in relation the dimensions of my wife my son and my two sons and myself you know, my, our width and our height as a as a wall or as a as a as a defense or as as the, the limit of my experience. I'm always trying to understand exactly where are they and what what dangers are they encountering or not. So there was a sense of this bringing those dimensions to Dallas and giving them an utterance in the space. So before before there were words for the show, I knew that I was going to come here with my family. So I made these huge, well, I say huge, they're, they're the, approximately the size of my family, these vertical concrete pink utterances, and it seemed that as a raw utterance that they would somehow be um, as if their skin had been peeled off and you wouldn't know their ethnicity, and they're just like these tonguey, tonguey muscles just somehow stationed in the space, exploring the landscape of the writing that was to come later. I've lost two leaves and, and an idea of the meristem and at the this moment in uh, cell division and differentiation is pointed a plant in which it knows somehow to become something else and then there's expanding somehow on this idea of uh, when I, oh, you know when you look at the idea of the meristem and you and you see wo- words like uh, division and di- differentiation there's a lot of that going on right now so i thought i thought that was that was i'll i'll, I'll, I'll hold those words in the circle and then these words that this, the meristem happens in two places. It happens at the root and it happens at the shoot. So I was like, fucking hell, I'll, I'll take those two words as well. And root shoot in relation to their differentiation. I uh, wanted to manifest, yeah, wanted to manifest that in, in spaces as, as uh, I've been just looking a lot at, at plants and, and, and how they grow, partly to do with that suddenly I, I have a house with a garden which I've, I've never had before so being able to just literally spend time without worrying that people think i'm some freak in the park i can just sit in my garden and and just lovingly look at my grass and, and my weeds and see how they're growing and what they're doing and and and, and steal that the, their little techniques and their, their little ways of manifest manifesting themselves in space well speaking of, of of grass and weeds you have a piece that the public art fund has put up at city hall park in new york it's a white concrete sculpture. It will have an image of it and, of course, of of the Nasher work up on manpodcast.com. The piece up in New York is not the only piece of yours that makes me wonder about this. 
But a lot of your work reminds me of, of Franz Vest. His forms, in the case of the work at the Nasher, colors he likes. Of course, with, 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 with Vest, there is this inevitable tactility, which in his case, he allows. Is he important to you? Not at all, really. I've seen his stuff and I haven't seen so much in the flesh. It's, it's quite lovely, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with where I come from and my existence. And so I just uh, courteously just get on with my own work. I've, I, you know, I just, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm trying to get my, deliver my work in, in, into a public context. Uh, these things look like sculptures. People call them sculptures, and so I have this incredible privilege of being able to di diagram my emotions in such a way and all these shows and stuff. But I'm not particularly interested in art as, as such. I mean, I haven't got time to go and look at what other people are doing, and I'm scared if I stand and have an incredible moment in relation to another person's work, what, what am I supposed to turn that into my own work? I mean, I just want to make my own work. That's that's what I'm doing, Joe. You know? And it's very selfish. And I know there's a context out there. I did study it. And it took me about five years to get over it. Do you know, I, I hope I don't. I wonder what that what, what people think about that. I don't know. Well, I, I can't speak for how people think of it, but as for me, I think it's it's pretty neat. I um... there's a negative aspect to it in the sense of me just having a chip on my shoulder. You know, I grew up in a situation where you know the government had closed our libraries, and I didn't have access to this stuff. And for a long time, bloody hell, I really did want it, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't afford it. I knew it was out there before the internet. You know all that. So there's kind of a sense of like two fingers, you know, like, fuck you. I, I never had access to this shit. And I, I just want to prove, you know, that you can be in the world, you can go to the DIY shop and you can make this stuff. Of course, um, there's a, an element of conceit because um, I can, I can, you know, I, I, I'm pretty well, I'm pretty aware of what's going on in, in the art world, but in spite of myself, let's say. And that you can turn that DIY material into forms of your own devising rather than based on other people's forms i think i think there's a space for this I, I, i'm not saying it's the only way i'm just saying that yeah i mean it's also like you think using things like concrete and stuff people talk maybe often there's a conversation about brutalism and brutalist architecture and oh you so you're a subproletariat so let's talk about it in relation it's well you know i grew up in a, in a, con in a concrete hell but there was so much love there. It's got nothing to do with some kind of intellectualized idea of what, you know the aesthetics of grey and post-British environment, all that whole shit. I don't know. Michael Dean, thanks so much. My pleasure. Let's go for a beer sometime, Tyler. Take care, mate. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. A new exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art focuses on the ways in which contemporary architecture and design has addressed notions of shelter in light of global refugee emergencies. Insecurities Tracing Displacement and Shelter features projects by architects, designers, and artists working across a range of mediums and scales that respond to the complex circumstances brought about by forced displacement. Don't miss it. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Welcome back. 
The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is celebrating its publication of Julian Onderdonk, a catalog resume, with an exhibition of 25 Onderdonk paintings. It's on view through January 2nd, 2017. The show was selected by my next guest, MFA Houston curator Kaylin Weber. Kaylin, welcome. Thank you very much, Tyler. Thanks for inviting me. I think for listeners who've who've been to Texas or who live in Texas, they know who, who Julian Onderdonk is, and they're familiar with the extraordinarily bright colors of his paintings. But I think we should probably start by explaining to everybody else who he is. He's born in 1882, and how do we get him from, from birth to art? Well, Julian Onderdonk was born in San Antonio, Texas in 1882, and he was the son of another artist named Robert Jenkins Onderdonk. And Robert Jenkins Onderdonk had come to Texas from the East Coast and had began his work sort of studying in New York with William Merritt Chase. So when Julian was a young child, his first introduction to art was through his father, Robert. Robert was essentially his first sort of teacher or trainer. And he very quickly had an interest in art and even letters from his or descriptions from his other describe him as very interested in art at a very young age. So once he was sort of in his teen years, his father really identified that he needed to develop his skills more. And to do that, he really needed to go to New York to have a more sort of traditional training as he had. So Julian Onderdonk goes to New York in 1901 where he immediately starts studying at the Art Students League and really kind of begins his formal training, you know, studying anatomy and drawing and really kind of understanding the basics of traditional art study. And then that summer of 1901, he goes to Long Island and studies with William Merritt Chase at his Shinnecock School of Art. And it's really there that he has this sort of transformative experience. He begins painting outdoors and he really, he always identified very much with landscape, even as a young person, he was always painting landscape. And it's at Long Island um, and at the Shinnecock School with Chase that he really sort of, that blossoms for him, that he really can expand the work he does in landscape. And of course, Chase was a strong believer in this idea of being outdoors and just painting from nature, not producing a lot of preparatory sketches and studies in more of the sort of the impressionist vein. And Onderdonk picks that up and really sort of takes it on board. And that exposure and influence of Chase really stays with him throughout his career. You can kind of see those basic sort of concepts of uh, sort of the development of the composition and the interest in, you know, light and painterly techniques, all kind of stemming from those early days with Chase during that summer. So he spends uh, another seven plus years in, in New York and returns to San Antonio in 1909, where he he, he returned with his family. Uh, he began sort of his artist work there in San Antonio. And once he returns to San Antonio, he really sort of falls in love with his native state again. Uh, and everything that's sort of distinctive and unique about the topography, the architecture, the the just general sort of fauna and flora of this this place just sort of captivates him again and all of his paintings become sort of these you know very sort of American impressionist chase influenced compositions but the subject matter is purely Texas and I think that's really where he he shines that's where some of his best paintings are produced so he has this 
you know, very successful career in Texas and returns to New York very frequently. So he maintains those ties with the art community in New York just as an artist, but also he becomes a representative for the state fair in Dallas and and they are bringing or they're asking him to sort of bring great art back to Texas for exhibition during the state fair. So almost every year until his death, he returns to New York and, you know, looks at contemporary art and historical art and he brings back some great examples to the state. And that that sort of maintains his ties with New York, maintains his his patron base a little bit in New York as well. Uh, and then really just kind of puts his mark also on sort of the early collections and patronage in Texas because of what he's bringing in. And then he unfortunately dies at a very young age in 1922 at the age of 40. So it's really hard to say what he would have done or what he, where he would have gone because he doesn't actually have that long of a career. However, while he's active, he is extremely prolific, whether, whether he's in New York where up until when he leaves in 1909, he's painting kind of very impressionist scenes. And I don't merely mean in terms of brush stroke, but, brush stroke, but in terms of canals and waterways and, and skies. How long after returning to Texas does he realize that his chance for distinction, his chance for kind of separating himself from chasey and brushiness, if you will, is is in the Texas landscape and particularly the dramatic colors you get when, when you have things like fields of Texas flowers or cacti up against the colors of, of the earth and the sky. I think it it happens pretty quickly for him within the first year or two because he he does start to get, you know, a lot of commercial success, a lot of patronage, especially for bluebonnet paintings. And that's obviously something that he becomes quite known for. But I think, you know, you can just see sort of obviously by how prolific he is and the variety of works that he's producing that, that he's he has quite a, a good sort of patronage from very early on when he arrives back in Texas. How quickly does he find blue bonnets? The first maybe really great blue, blue bonnet painting is a 1913 painting of blue bonnets in the rain, but presumably that's that's not where he starts. No one starts in the rain. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, uh, he he uh, he identifies and, and starts working on on blue bonnets very quickly once he returns. The same for you know the live oak trees, the coreopsis, also even just the architecture such as the mission buildings. You know that's one of the first things he starts painting when he returns to Texas. Something that's very unique to to the Texas landscape. Did he leave behind any writings or explanations, any textual explanations of of why blue bonnets worked for him? He did. He, you know, he has. There's a there's a wonderful sort of, you know, archive of of some of his letters, especially back to his mother and his family, and you know, he he's quite one of the things that's quite interesting about Onderdonk is he's very much interested in the natural environment. He's he's very much a, a naturalist in that way. And if you look at, especially if you look at the the drawings that are represented in the catalog raisonne of individual blue bonnets, you can see that he's quite interested in just in the structure of the flower and how everything is sort of composed. And when he applies that to, to his paintings, which he does quite early on, you can see in the foreground, you know, his sort of painstaking detail of the blue bonnet and then as you move into the middle ground, it, of course, becomes a lot looser and sketchier and more atmospheric. But I think it's all based in a real keen interest in, in 
not only the blue bonnet, but just the natural environment in general. And I think that's one thing that hopefully people will take away from the exhibition and also from the catalog raisonne, just kind of seeing how much he actually studies these things. You mentioned Onderdonk's drawings of, of blue bonnets, and in the catalog raisonne, there's kind of a, a two-page spread that shows off a lot of them. There's there's a great and undertold American art history of botanical illustration and how it informs painting. But more or less, leaving that aside for the moment, what about Onderdonk's blue bonnet drawing stands out, and then how do they kind of make their way into the paintings? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the drawings in particular, you can see how he's, it's almost a, you know, sort of a, a dissection of each of the, the flowers, kind of looking at the leaves, looking at the petals, looking at the stem, and really sort of kind of breaking it apart to understand it. And then when you see it applied in the painting, he's taken that that level of detail, which is often very visible in the foreground of the landscapes. Uh, and then, of course, once you move into the middle ground and background, it sort of becomes a, a larger sort of atmospheric effect, less detail, but all based on that sort of understanding of the flower itself and that interest in the flower itself. I mean, he does the same thing with Coreopsis and, and the live oak tree, too. The live oak trees are great. There is a, a an American art historical tradition going back to the mid-19th century of artists in the West, Texas included, seizing upon the dramatic, old, majestic oak in the middle of an otherwise seemingly spare landscape. We think of, of Onderdonk and Bluebonnets a lot. What did oak trees do for him? I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me about the oak tree paintings is there's a different scale, a different depth of field. Yes, well, I think, you know, whether he's kind of painting them in, in sort of groups or clusters or whether he's looking at that sort of isolated single tree, you know, I think he, he loves sort of the way, well, he loves the majestic feeling of the oak tree and its distinctive character with those curving branches. And then I think he also likes how, if you look at a painting like The Old Monarch, Late Afternoon from 1912, he really also just enjoys how light plays off of the the bark of the tree against those twisting branches and just the the tree itself alone makes this wonderful statement across this majestic texas landscape that he loves so much and that's what you know you really get a sense of in these pictures how how does onderdonk impact the way texans thought about the landscape was there a recognition of its beauty and a value held in it by Texans, or does Underdonk maybe wake that up a little bit? I think there was a recognition of its beauty, but I definitely think he does wake it up as well, because, you know, in just looking at, you know, other landscape painters, many of them came after him. He was sort of the first and sort of the greatest of those early Texas landscape painters. So I think, you know, his influence in terms of especially the art produced uh, relating to the to the Texas Hill Country in particular. You know, there were artists such as Frank Ray, who was slightly older than Onderdonk. He really sort of captured the essence of the Texas landscape, but he focused more on the Plains region. So there were artists that were capturing very specific parts of the Texas landscape. But Julian Onderdonk was one of the first to really look at the Texas Hill Country in that way and start producing images of the beauty of the Hill Country, which is a very specific area, you know, in the environs of of San Antonio. One of the things about Texas Hill Country is it was before it was it was known for its beauty. It was known for its poverty. 
does Onderdonk play a role in in that transition in the way Texans uh, found value in that place, maybe one or two Texans in particular? No, I, I, d- I definitely think he did. You know, I think one of the things is that he doesn't have sort of, there's not a sort of a literary co- equal to him at that time. So I do think he sort of, in sort of a visual way, takes on that role of sort of a promoter of the Texas Hill Country that gets picked up by many others. But it's not as though, you know, at the moment he's producing these works, there's a lot of people writing about the Texas Hill Country. So who was who was seeing the works when they were being made? I mean, after... Underdunk dies in, in 1922. You mentioned he died young. And it's it's in the 50s and 60s that his work really kind of moves into prominent collections and places in Texas. So who was seeing them when they were being made? Well, uh, there, I mean, it was, a you know, there were a lot of people in San Antonio who were collecting at that time. And even the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, you know, it's it's quite interesting to me that the very second painting to enter the collection. So the the precursor to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the Houston Art League. And that collection started far before we had our first building in 1924. And one of the first paintings, actually the second painting to enter the collection in 1918, was a painting by Julian Onderdonk entitled Sunlight and Shadow. And it was painted in 1910. So it was acquired during his lifetime from a man named George Dickinson, who actually had been, you know, collecting a variety of art, and Onderdonk was one of those artists, so collecting contemporary art. So it's interesting to me that one of the first collection, first objects in our collection was a work by a Texas artist, and not only that, but a contemporary artist who was living. You mentioned Onderdonk traveled back and forth to New York a lot. Did he try to get his work over in New York? He did. He, you know, I think that was, you know, obviously his primary role of going back and forth to New York was to Texas State Fair, but uh, I, you know, at the same time, he was an artist and he was trying to continue to to work, you know, on on selling paintings. So he definitely was still trying to actively associate with patrons up there and artists there as well. Onderdonk dies at forty years old. What happened? He had had a, a surgery for an obstruction in his intestine, and he just he didn't recover. So it was quite sudden. Do we see a way in which Onderdonk has influence even today on the way Texans consider the landscape, their own landscape? I think so. I mean, I think you only have to look at, you know, in the springtime when most Texans who have children of a certain age, you know, head to the Texas Hill Country to put their children in the fields of blue bonnets and take photographs of them. You know, that sort of influence of these early you know, Onderdonk and early Texas artists who are capturing these blue bonnet fields is undoubtedly sort of underlying that. I also think when you look at, you know, organizations such as the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, which, you know, really sort of puts in a prominent place all of these sort of Texas wildflowers and things that are very distinctive to the Texas hill country landscape uh, and really shows a passion for that. I think a lot of that um, stems back to a passion and an interest that was started by Onderdonk and some of these early Texas artists. And of course, Lady Bird Johnson's interest in wildflowers and beautification, to use the word of the time, spreads nationally. I mean, it, th- that's an idea that comes out of that part of Texas and the, and the Lady Bird uh, takes with her to Washington and, and to the White House. Absolutely. We're only getting an Onderdonk catalog resonate 95 years or so after his death. Do you think there's anything recent that, that brought him back to attention or or was it, you know, just time? 
I think it was just time. You know, the the catalog raised any authors, Harry Half and Elizabeth Half, had been working on this project for well over twenty years. They had this what access to the Onderdonk archive with all of his letters and many of his drawings. And they really felt important to be able to share that information. And then also just felt it was important that, you know, Onderdonk is one of the best known and most admired of these early Texas artists and that, you know, a catalog raisonné needed to be written about him. And it just took a, a while to come to fruition because of the years of research that they were, you know, producing and compiling. Finally, do you have a favorite? In the exhibition, and not to to sound as though you know our painting is the best, but I, I do love the pairing of the Museum of Fine Art Houston's Sunlight and Shadow with our William Merritt Chase Sunlight and Shadow Shinnecock Hills, because side by side, I think you you get this wonderful, very quick, and uh, it's in one of the first galleries, sort of visual impact of the influence of William Merritt Chase on Julian Onderdonk. But at the same time, when you look at the Onderdonk painting, you get this you know, incredible color and passion for this place, you know, far from the shores of New York. So I think that that's one of my pa- favorite paintings simply because that pairing makes it even more, you know, wonderful and interesting. Another favorite would be Snow in the Rock Quarry from 1918. And I think, you know, Julian Onderdonk painted many snow scenes while he was in New York, just probably because as a Texan, he's not seeing that much snow before that. But when he returns to to Texas and there is that sort of rare dusting of snow in San Antonio or in in the hill country, this painting kind of captures that excitement for you have this, you know, beautiful sort of white snow, which has all the reflections of the light. And then you have the cacti sort of peeking through the snow, which is, you know, such a very Texas scene. And just the the play of of light and color and just his enthusiasm, I think, for the snow-covered landscape that's such a rare thing. It just makes it a beautiful painting. Both of those are only in the American West landscapes. There's, There's nowhere else they could be. And in sunlight and shadow in particular, it feels like the ground itself is a light source. And anybody who's, who's, who's been in the West knows, knows that feeling. Kaylin Weber, thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.